Hello there and welcome to Fire Engineering Blog Talk Radio in this installment of the Professional Volunteer Fire Department, the podcast that's dedicated to our great volunteer fire service and getting all our listeners to embrace the message that developing and displaying and maintaining a professional image and reputation are the duty and responsibility of all firefighters. And all firefighters should recognize that true professionalism True professionalism is not defined by any paycheck. Tom Merrill here, glad to have you listening to this latest episode. And no doubt it is definitely on a very somber note that we embark on another year of the Professional Volunteer Fire Department podcast, because as I'm sure you know, we lost our great friend, my incredible mentor and supporter in Bobby Halton, Chief Bobby Halton, who passed away just before Christmas. And I said it before that I I simply have no words to really put this into perspective because, as you know, Bobby, as we all called him, did so much. He did so much for me personally. And I know he did so much for all of us in the fire service. He truly was larger than life. And of course, he built FDIC into what it is today. I mean, FDIC has always been one of the preeminent conferences but he truly took it to another level. But beyond that, for me personally, my God, he believed in me. He encouraged me. He motivated me. Um, I think he believed in me more than I believed in myself. And, you know, he got me writing. He got my first articles published on Fire Engineering's website and then in the magazine. He invited me to present at FDIC numerous times. And he asked me to do this podcast and he even got me the book contract for my soon to be released book, The Professional Volunteer Fire Department. But I mean, beyond that, he was just such a dear friend and so popular. And it's as popular as he was, you know, for all the incredible demands on his time, the deadlines, the workload, everything he faced He always, always, always had time for a phone call from me, always. And I know it was that way with pretty much everyone because I heard those stories. I was at his funeral service uh, last week. I was incredibly honored to, to be there. And, you know, we all talked about how Bobby brought us all there. He brought us together. In addition to everything else he might have given us in our professional life, he gifted us with friendship. I have friends that I never would have had if it were not for Bobby. And and I don't know what else I can say. Just I am going to miss my dear friend, as I know all of you are dearly, but I'm never going to forget him and the impact he had, the role he played in, in my development and the role he played in our incredible fire service. And just what a great friend he was. And Bobby, I miss you dearly and but I'll never forget you or, forget to think of you for the impact you've had in a positive way in my fire career, but the show must go on. I know that's what Bobby would have wanted for sure. And I know of course he'd want me to remind everybody that FDIC 2023 will be here before you know it, April 24th to the 29th in Indianapolis. And I certainly hope to see all of you there. Um, I'll be doing a classroom session this year, an hour and 45 minute 
professional volunteer fire department presentation. And I'd love for the opportunity to meet any of you and see you there so we can talk about what it means to be a professional volunteer firefighter serving in a professional volunteer fire department. So please, if you if you've been there, you know, but if you've never been there, see if you can make plans to attend FDIC from April 24th to the 29th, because I know you won't be disappointed and I know you'll be hooked like the rest of us. And I, I briefly mentioned my book and I'm working hard to get that out by FDIC. That's the goal. Um, everything's been submitted. It's in the editor's hands and we were hoping for FDIC time, but um, I don't know if it'll be out by then, but it should be out at some point this year. So FDIC 2023, right around the corner. I hope you can take the opportunity to get there. Anyway, let's get into the show this evening. I always like to start out the first of the year focusing on something that we can all concentrate on for the upcoming year to make us better as a member in our volunteer fire department or in some way help our volunteer fire department be better or to help our fire service be better, whether it's with officer development or focusing on recruitment and retention. Those are a couple of the things I focused on at the beginning, the last couple of years. And then as the year went on, kept going back to those. But this year, I wanted to talk about training and specifically the volunteer fire department training drill, because as I travel and as I meet people or as I write articles and get feedback from my readers and people in my class, the volunteer fire department training drill has definitely generated the most feedback, often in a negative way too. As a matter of fact, I, I talk about in my 40 something part series of professional volunteer fire department, by far the most feedback ever generated was the third or fourth article I did when I concentrated on the volunteer fire department training drill. I got emails and phone calls from people all over the country talking good and bad about their hometown volunteer fire department drill. And like I said, sometimes I get negative comments, probably more negative than positive, either little to no training requirements, poorly organized drills. People talk about poor attendance. No one shows up at the drills. We don't require enough. We require too much. And so I wanted to talk about this because I like to focus on training in the volunteer fire service. And it's my personal belief that no matter how long you've been in, that you still need to train and drill. I don't like the common practice in many volunteer fire departments, including my own, that the more time you have in, the less drills you have to go to. I've been in 40 years uh, as of last month, and I always support training drills. I might not go to as many as I did due to personal circumstances and knowing now that I'm not a chief or an officer, I can pick and choose a little more, but I firmly support training and have never not supported training. It is so important. It needs to be embraced by everybody. And that can present challenges for sure, because the training officers know they need to put programs together that are not only organized and ready to go, but they got to work to benefit all the attendees as well, like us 40-year members, as well as the new two-year member. And that could be a challenge. So I thought this would be a great topic to talk about. I thought it would be a great idea to talk about the Volunteer Fire Department training drill as we start out 2023, this brand new year. And maybe we can all take some pieces of information and glean some nuggets to help us enhance the training program back home or give ourselves a little kick in the pants to understand that, hey, we got to do our part too. We have to attend and participate in our department's drills or our department is actually even having drills, right? And coincidentally, through the combined efforts 
of the National Volunteer Fire Council, the International Association of Fire Chiefs, Volunteer and Combination Officers section, and the International Association of Fire Service Instructors, a booklet has been produced that can help any department put together a better training program for its membership. It's called Training Volunteer Firefighters to be Combat Ready, which I'm going to make mandatory reading for any officer listening to this episode. And if you're a firefighter or department member, you should read it as well. It's available for download, and it's going to cover topics such as training delivery methods, roles of the training officer and instructor, which, by the way, training officer and instructor sometimes get intertwined, but they're really not the same thing. We'll talk about that tonight. Planning, training, policies and procedures, how to assess our firefighter capabilities. All of this information is contained in this easy-to-read, compact booklet. And I'm pleased to welcome onto the show two of the co-authors of this new booklet, Chief John Buckman and Chief Brian McQueen. Chief Buckman's been on the show before. He served as a chief of the German, or he was been a chief officer in the Germantown Fire Department in Evansville, Indiana for 35 years. He's a 52-year member of that department. And along with Chief Buckman, I have Chief Brian McQueen, the past chief of the Whitesboro, New York Fire Department. So past director of the Firemen's Association State of New York. I could go on and on with the resumes of both of these fine gentlemen, but I'm so glad to welcome them on to the show this evening so we can talk about this new booklet. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hey, Tom, Thank you, thanks Tom. a lot. You know, we appreciate uh, we appreciate the opportunity to be able to do this. And what a great opportunity uh, for John and I to be able to do this at the uh, tip of your January season here, setting off a... Uh, you know, wonderful programs that you do run throughout the entire year. And, uh, you know, I just, we can't say enough. I'm entering my 45th year with the Whitesboro Fire Department. And, uh, you know, being a volunteer firefighter just adds so much, uh, you know, to, to the community, to your family, you know, to your brothers and sisters you're walking to battle with. But, you know, I'll let John talk a little bit about how we got this going. It actually started at the National Volunteer Fire Council's um, training summit that was held down in uh, Orlando and uh, John had another uh, spirit of moment idea speaking <laughs> to somebody. So John, why don't you uh, take it from there? Hey, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Tom. Uh, echoing uh, Brian's comments. We appreciate the opportunity and because we both have a passion for training and it's been, a, it's been our passion all of our lives. Brian was a teacher uh, as well as in the fire department. I was a state fire campaign director in Indiana here for 15 years. But the issue is, and Tom, as you said, you get a lot of complaints when you write about training. We try to make this document simple, not real complicated. Training is complicated, but there are certain things that you can do to make it more pleasant for the volunteer firefighter. And that is, one of them is scheduling. One of them is preparation. One of them is planning. And then obviously the fourth part, there's execution, but you can't do one without the other. It takes all four. And we talk in the document about the different types of preparation, planning, execution, and the different, what you need to do is do an assessment of your department and how it, how, what kind of training you need. Every, every department, career or volunteer has different training needs because the services we provide require us to be competent in delivering those services. And so when volunteer firefighters say, oh, because I heard this when I was a state training director, oh, you're just trying to kill us 
-hmm. with all these rules. I go, what rules? OSHA sets rules. But when you buy a defibrillator, guess what? We expect you to be trained on how to use that defibrillator. When you buy new SCBAs, we expect you to be trained on how to use that new SCBA. You can't just buy new stuff or replace old stuff with new stuff without training. But you've got to be as the chief or as the training officer, you have to make sure that your training is relevant to what the volunteer needs, not what they want, what they need. And that's, we talk in the document about assessment. So I'll let Brian. You know, Chief, if I could, you know, it's funny that, and you're so right about how it is just, it's got to be relevant. But if we can even back up a step, I've talked to some departments, and, and I'm sure you gentlemen have it too, you, that their training requirements are little to none. There's some departments that don't even consider training as like an important part of the organization. And I, I talk about it all the time in my presentation. I, I talk about these building blocks that a professional foundation to me, training is the most important building block. And if you don't have a good training foundation, the whole professional foundation is going to begin to crumble. I like to talk about that in, in my presentation. And you said it right in the beginning of this booklet, right on page two of the booklet. You know, you, you taught firefighters, without a doubt, are the backbone of the country. Volunteers, obviously, are sacrificing their time, their energy, in some circumstances, unfortunately, their life to serve their citizens. So the manual put together is dedicated to providing information to chiefs and training officers and firefighters who serve as professionals, not because of a paycheck, but because they're committed to saving the lives of others and protecting property from fire and other natural and man-made man -made disasters. Says it so well. And Chief Buckman, like you said, you know, you've got to identify what these hazards are that you're going to be responding to and train to that level to be competent. But first and foremost... You got to embrace the fact that we have to train. Training isn't, you join the volunteer fire department, but training isn't voluntary. You have got to train and we've got to get every member to embrace that. And again, 40 years in, four months in, four minutes in, the whole department's got to be on board with that. And if not, you know, the, I, these aren't costumes, right? I say that all the time. We're not in the land of make-believe folks. It's the real deal. So before we can even, get into training, we've all got to get the mindset in our department that training is a priority and it's important. No, no question about that, uh, Chief. You're absolutely correct. And, you know, we took a look at the document that was created 10 years ago by the National Volunteer Fire Council, which at that time was a very good document. It was six pages. This new document is 50. So it kind of exemplifies that the, the ways of the volunteers and how they respond to fires now. And sometimes let's talk about it, the lack of volunteers that we have and the need to impress on our mutual aid and our, you know, our, our box assignments and stuff and how we need to work together with them. Those days have changed, you know, the 80,000 volunteers, you know, are, you don't see them come around the state anymore. So, you know, we, we have to really define why is training important? What are we responding to today? And does that person that's walking next to me, Whoever it is, male or female, shouldn't that person be just as trained as you are, if not better? You know, I think that's very, very important. And, you know, we deal with a lot right back at the firehouse. You know, you're going to a meeting tonight. Um, you know, we're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, bullying. We're dealing with PTSD. You know, these are things that 10 years ago, 
you know, they were there, but they weren't in the limelight. Well, now there's a lot of articles written about it, things that the leadership now has to deal with. And I think that's so important, you know, and, and I think John and you both said it, you know, what happens in Whitesboro isn't going to happen in the Snyder Fire Department. We're two different departments covering two different types of areas. So the training needs to be different. It's funny. Tom, you, Tom, you mentioned requirements. Yes, sir. And although we don't get specific in the document, we talk about expectations. That as the fire chief, you have to expect your people to be able to perform. I don't know if we can put a number on it. So it's 12 hours a year, 24 hours a year, 36 hours a year. The number of hours is not relevant. It's the performance. It's the outcome that is relevant is you can sit there in three hours in a classroom on your butt. Well, what did that prove other than the fact that you can sit on your butt for three hours? We talk in the document about so much about drilling, getting out on the drill ground, getting out in the fire station. Don't PowerPoint people to death. You want to talk about ladders? Take them out to the engine or the ladder and show them the ladders. Let them touch them, feel them, and smell them. Right. That's right. how they learn. That's how our young people learn today, hands-on. I think we have so many times in the volunteer fire service where we do just worry about, okay, you need to make four drills, 10 drills, or like you said, hours, but we're not making sure they're proficient in the task. How many times are one or two people doing the task in 10 or 12 or more are just standing there watching and then they move on to the next task without everyone performing competently the task that's being instructed on. So that is a very good point. How do we fix that? Are we, is that something we can talk about? You know, and, and let's think of how learning has changed. You know, COVID has really changed, changed us, whether it's the career fire service or the volunteer fire service. And that's pretty unique about the document that, that we have right here in front of us. That's that free download. It was it was uh, put together by both career and volunteer fire, firefighters and leaders. So, you know, it blends a good message in there. What do we want volunteer firefighters to know? And how are we going to teach them? And, and absolutely. So many people learn better by doing it today than they do just by reading and sitting and being PowerPointed to death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. You know, if I could ask, you know, the interesting thing to me with this booklet is, you know, you have the nice introduction and one of the first main subjects you talk about is surviving the job and health and wellness and um, the cancer threat and things like that. And Chief McQueen, you even said, you know, the bullying that we can't tolerate today. What was your thought process that went into making that such an early part of this manual, the focus on surviving the job mentally, physically, and um, even avoiding things like bullying and harassment? What was the thought process that went into that, like talking about that right away? Well, that was basically my topic. And, um, you know, being a cancer, occupational cancer survivor, and when I attended the uh, National uh, Fallen Firefighters Summit back in 2015, that really uh, paved the way uh, for, for the improvement to uh, cancer prevention along the career and volunteer fire service. And, but I still see it, and I don't like to see it, that there are still departments. I just saw one posted uh, on a Facebook page where they just got back from a fire. Their face is all sooty. Their, their uh, turnout gear is all all full of set. So, you know, it just doesn't seem like we're getting the message across it. Some want to buy into it. Some don't want to buy into it. You know, they want to get that, you know, I do the job. I don't have to clean myself mm -hmm. up. Well, I mean, it's out there. You all know it. I mean, 
if you ever have to go through a cancer diagnosis and live away from home for seven, seven weeks alone, away from your family and your friends, it'll change your mind, you know, for sure. And then in the fire service, we see it, the joking around, it goes on in the fire department. You know, you get these, these people in the department and how many times do you hear them when they leave? I'm not in the click. You know, we have to deal with those types of things. This is some information that's going to help our leaders in the volunteer fire service, uh, you know, um, develop plans, develop uh, operating instructions, develop SOGs, policies that are going to prevent those things from happening in a very simple way. And we did provide some guidance in the document for them to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very important. Think, uh, Go ahead, Chief. One of the things, Tom, is the reason we put it in the front of the book is because in the volunteer fire service, uh, I don't want to say we ignore it, but it, it's not that important when we believe it is important. Surviving the job, whether it's PTSD, cancer, uh, whatever it is, that has to be one big part of the training program. Yeah, absolutely. We got to survive to perform, right? So, um, and and you talked about this blended learning style, the training delivery methods. Um, I keep hearing blended learning style. We have to offer more of a blended learning style. That's what our generations today expect, the new generation coming into the fire service. Again, every generation's different. My generation sitting through a three-hour lecture, that's just how things were, looking at a font that was about the size eight on an overhead or something like that, right? So what is this blending learning style that y'all are talking about? Chief McQueen, can you take that or Chief? Yeah, yeah I, don't mind. I don't mind taking it. Sure, without a doubt. You know, you mentioned earlier how, you know, we learned to do things differently over the past three years because of the COVID restrictions. So, you know, we've learned that, you know, you can do, you know, even, even though there was no in-person trainings going on in your fire station, you really got together with your officers and developed a plan to be able to do it virtually. All right. John mentioned earlier about the importance of taking a classroom session and taking it outside, whether it's ladders, hoses, or how about on a Saturday, let's just uh, take the hose bed on engine three and dump it out and reload it again. You know, it's just, it's the hands-on piece of it. You know, you, you get some new nozzles into the fire department, but just don't say this is a task force tip and this is a straight bar or whatever. Take them out and use that and mm -hmm. build that into your training programs. The same thing when you, when you, you know, you're running off your box alarm to direct mutual aid program with your neighboring department. What's there, what's, what's wrong with going into that department and, and getting to know their, their equipment and them coming to you and getting to know their equipment at all. You know, so the blended learning is important. You know, it, it really takes up three parts, the book, you know, the, the instructional lesson and the hands-on piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the things that we recognize, even though we may be senior members in the fire service is that young people learn differently than we learned. And I, this one instructor come up to me, he, he told me, he said, I was teaching pump operations and I was going through how the, pump, the impeller, is attached to the shaft and all this stuff on the inner workings of the pump. And this young kid in the back room wasn't paying attention. So at break, he went up and asked the young man, what, what, what were you doing? He goes, I was on the Watchers uh, website looking up the Watchers pump stuff from there. I was way ahead of you in what you were teaching. They do their own research. So they come to class with some preconceived ideas, not everybody, but the ones who are really interested 
they've done their homework before they've even been to class. Yeah. So as an instructor, you need to rec recognize that as like, that's how you start off the class. Well, what do you know about this subject? And then that will drive the instructor on what he or she needs to teach to yeah. them. And see the instruct, most of our instructors going, oh my God, no, I have to teach them PowerPoint slide one through PowerPoint slide 24. <laughs> I can't do one out of order. Yeah. Oh my, would that be heresy? So I think we saw that as a real need for instructors to change the way they deliver training to satisfy the member's needs, not the instructor's needs. Yeah, and and what, one of the things we also did, you know, we wanted to put the role of the training officer so many times, and you probably see it, uh, Tom, that you go in the fire stations and they have their calendar posted, you know, and it's the same calendar every year. We're doing this on this day, that on this day, this on that day. Well, of course, people are going to be bored with that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So in, in this, uh, starting on page 17 in section four here, we talk about the diversification of your training drills and your training calendar, you know, how to, as John said earlier, develop it to, for your department, you know, because you may not be a water rescue department, but you can be a heck of a tower group. So let's start developing the training that, that we're going to meet. If we need a water rescue, we're going to call our neighbors next to us. Yeah. And you talk about the difference between, you know, there's the training officer and then there's the instructor and then there's the student, all three very different membership types, or I should say uh, categories of people, but training officers where it all begins, right? Is he, the, or he or she, the main organizer of, Hey, here's what we're going to be doing for the coming semester, the coming year. Where does it start with that training officer? Someone's got to take the bull by the horns, right? Oh, it, it actually, we, we would believe it starts with the fire chief. The fire chief sets the tone for training. They set the tone by their attendance. They set the tone by their attitude. Because if the fire chief is not a supporter of training or doesn't attend training with the firefighters, then they're going to go, well, if it's not important to him or her, why is it important to me? So it starts with the fire chief, sets the proper tone and attitude. Then the training officer adopts that attitude of yeah. it's going to be this kind of training that kind of training and the, the the instructors then have to realize we're going to do it different it's not about me it's about them and what they need yeah yeah i've seen chiefs come in you know to the training grounds with the bored look on their face or they don't really want to be there and because they're the chief they might show up late and leave early and you're right, that definitely impacts the attendees, you know, fair or not, right? When you're a chief officer, and I know this show is not about officers or chiefs, but you do set the tone in so many ways. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's got to be a top-down, bottom-up type of a development for your training as well. You know, I mean, you're just not going to give it to the role of that, of that training officer. I think it's got to be the people that are going to sit around the table at the leadership, maybe bring in some of the firefighters. What do you need? Do a survey. What right. are some of the things you'd like to see, you know? So it's got to be a top-down, bottom-up type of a uh, development for our training. And you mentioned, too, about just kind of figuring out what you need to train on. And obviously, I think every fire department, I'd say I'm, I can go out on a limb that 99.9% .9 of fire departments have apparatus in their apparatus bay that is designed to put water on a fire. So that's probably a pretty common thing to train on. But do you think the chief should sit down with a membership, a group of members and officers to decide what else needs to be trained on? Where does it, is the chief set the tone for that too, uh, Chief Buckman? Is it up to him to 
kind of say, here's the direction I want to go? The chief has to listen. That is a big an attribute of an officer, period, is to be able to listen. So, yes. And we're talking about the smaller departments. You may have attendees that, that listen to this podcast or webcast that are from departments with 75 or 100 volunteers. Well, the chief is not going to attend all the training for those 75. We actually, I think we targeted this pro, this paper more towards departments with 12 to 24 members. Okay. So smaller departments. So when we're talking about the chief attendant training in a department that's got 16 members, I, I mean, I got a call the other day asking me, what do I do? Our fire chief hasn't been there, a department with 18 members, and the, their chief has not attended a re, what they call regular training session in the last 12 months, in the entire year of 2022. And they, they're calling, going, what do we do? So you know, I gave them some ideas. We'll see what they end up doing. But Should that's not, so it, it is about the fire chief setting the tones and having the right attitude and supporting the members. And so back to your part of your question was, do they listen to what the firefighters need? Absolutely. That is a, a document in here. Uh, if, it's, if it's not in here, it's available as a download of how to assess your firefighters experience. I wrote this, what I call experiential models years ago. And it's to ask your members, how many times did you use the defibrillator last year? on a scene in training how many times did you put an air pack on on a scene in training simple questions like that because you know we can have a defibrillator and, and we may have deployed it five times but the same person deployed it all five times so it's like nobody else has experience so we need to train on that but if it's the other way around like all of our members have put an air pack on more than four times in the last 12 months then maybe that's not quite as high a priority as the defibrillator, just as an example, simple example. Right. And you, yeah. you get that by listening to what your people, what their experience is, uh, because it's not always about training. You know, it's education, training, research, and experience. You got to have all four of those to be a competent firefighter. Mm. And so you got to analyze, assess their experience as well as their training. I've never I heard of it being done that way before where you, I guess it's like you look at your app, you know, what's in your apparatus, but what can you expect, be expected to use on a regular basis? And then when's the last time you did it? You know, and you by know, asking those questions, you can form your, tra your training program based on the answers you're getting. Chief McQueen? Absolutely. Absolutely, Tom. And I believe that was section seven was the section that uh, John was talking about in the assessing the firefighters. But I think one of the other things we tried to embed in here is the importance of a mentor program. You know, so that you can assess these people when they come in, you're going to work with these firefighters, you know, in a small group atmosphere, you're going to know whether they're going to, they want to go interior, exterior, fire prevention, administration, you know, it's all developing a great mentor program, I think is crucial for any, any department success, no matter how large or how small they are. What are some important steps do you think go into a mentor program? I've seen different examples where a, member, a new member gets assigned a mentor, but then they've run into obstacles because they're at the firehouse at different times. I've seen other departments that have multiple mentors for one member. And then I've seen it where they only do it on a training night. And I've seen others that they're you know hooked at the hip for the first six months. In your experience, what works best to put a good mentor program together? Well, we have, I mean, we have an outstanding mentor program in the Whitesboro Fire Department. We have a deputy chief that's in charge of it. He's done a wonderful job assessing, you know, the, the firefighters when they come in. 
he first of all sets up with a personal approach, with a personal contact with him, brings him to the firehouse, meets him. He usually does it in groups of three, you know, when they come in. So we try to do it together. So by doing it in those groups of three or two or whatever it is, it's, it's again, you're helping this person, this person's helping another person. And then he, you know, reviews, that, reviews all of the operating instructions that we have, reviews our policies and bylaws. That's the first step to everything, answers any questions they may have. Then goes back into the personal protective equipment, uh, the runnings of the fire department, goes over every piece of apparatus that we have. And by then they start to, you know, say, well, maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I want to lend to the EMS side of it. So then he goes into that aspect. But, you know, our mentor actually takes his uh, people the first couple of weeks to their uh, BFO class. You know, if that's where they want to go or to their EMT class, if that's their avenue they want to go. So, yeah. you know, I applaud our, our deputy chief of uh, our mentor and he just does a great job. Yeah. You're, uh, you're, you asked the question of a guy who was not a, in favor of mentoring many, many years ago when that word first came into the fire service. Okay. Just telling you, I thought it was baloney, not worth the time, but I've learned how wrong I was because I now see the value of mentoring. But I don't see, I don't see it being successful if I assign you to a person. What I try to tell the senior members: figure out if you want to adopt this kid, or you want to sponsor this kid, and then create a friendship with that younger member, newer member, and that's how you create a mentoring relationship. Versus me saying, "Okay, John, you go mentor Brian." I don't even know Brian. I may not really like Brian or Brian, Brian may not like me. And so I can't force that relationship. So if you, I think one, if you're going to have a mentoring program, you have to train your senior firefighters how to be a mentor. Right. Don't assume they know. And what, you know, because if you just make me do it, guess what? I'm not right. going to put in the effort. I, I, I get, I'm so proud and lucky that the young people will talk to me. They ask me questions and I'm able to, to, to give them to influence their outlook and hopefully influence their in the volunteer fire service and maybe in the career fire service. But I didn't make them talk to me. I had to let them know one, I'm available and two, I'm not going to beat you up. I'm not going to bitch at you or complain at you because oh, you're just so lazy. I don't believe young people are lazy. I believe they have different priorities and they come from a different culture, but they're not lazy. They actually, they're not sitting at home watching TV. They're out doing stuff most all the time. Mm -hmm. So I think mentoring program is, is about, it's a voluntary system that train your people on how to be a mentor and then let them create the relationships. And also it should be supported from the top. Chief Buckman, for you to get, that support or to have those members talk to you um that tells me somebody's talking to these newer members too about who they should be going to and talking to and you're not viewed as a threat i've been in firehouses where the past chief can be viewed as a threat so the new chiefs or the current line will talk to the new members about avoiding those former members and you get a little bit of conflict there but it's obviously in your case, you're a respected member, you're a past chief, and members are encouraged to come and talk to you. And I think that's a part of the successful mentoring equation as well. And, and thank you. And that's, that's why I said I'm very lucky. Yeah, I am very lucky. And, 
And the Chiefs know there have been four fire chiefs since I left. Uh, I don't want to be fire chief. Right. Okay. It's real simple. I had my time. And if you want my opinion, I give it to the current fire chief. But I have in, all, in now, yeah, 10 years, uh, I have never gave my opinion to anybody other than the fire chief. Okay. about what's going on right which is good advice for all you past chiefs out there as well <laughs> right i had my time and like i told him you had to listen to me for 35 years you don't need to listen to me anymore now i can give the fire new fire chief some ideas on what i think they could do but it's up to them to choose if they want to yeah. but yes it is it is so important for that past chief and you're right we have a bunch of them that probably got rid of that fifth bugle on january 1st and uh, just remember, your time passed. Your mm -hmm. tenure is over. Your term is over. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the other thing with mentoring that's really important is pick the right. <laughs> make sure you're talking to the right people about who are pointing out the right mentors. You don't, you know, you don't want the mentor being that guy or gal that's always complaining or talking about the way it used to be. And and I've seen that happen too. They try and appease that person by making them a mentor but what kind of advice are they really giving that new member <laughs> yep. um, but mentoring is definitely a you hear it being talked about more and more and um, I think it is important um, and there's two good ideas there you know two good ideas that I think our listeners should consider you know blending those ideas together whether it's assigning mentors whether it's uh, just creating a pool of mentors, however you do it, but recognize that they can make a difference both in developing newer members and, and really helping them decide where they want to go in their career in your volunteer department. So, um, well, Brian, Brian mentioned it. And I, again, it's, it's about the leadership and it's about the support from the leadership is okay. You have a mentoring program. Then how often do you go up to John and say, uh, who are you mentoring currently? And how's it going? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't ever get feedback, you don't ever, you know what? John's going to give it up. It must not be important to the chief because the chief never asked me about it. Right. So that's important as well. Yep. I can say I want to create a mentoring program, but there's got to be some accountability and right. asking the questions. How's it going? How do you think this members are here for a long term or they short term or whatever and help you help you help the mentor create the future for the fire chief and the good members. Yeah. I, I, th I think what, you know, what we did also our, our, our department through, through the top of the leadership as well, put together some, uh, uh, you may want to call them JPRs. They're just um, objectives and um, areas where we want our, our new firefighters to be before they take the next step. So they're not going to go to the next step until they get that first step underneath there. And, and we included this also in section 10, uh, first do recommended firefighter performance criteria. So it's uh, very similar to some of the discussions we've had, but I think JPRs for mentors and for new firefighters are important. You know, we, we have a lot of compliments from our, from our state instructors. When our firefighters go to the state classes, they know what an SCBA is. They know how to put it on. You know, they, they know PPE, they know the requirements to get them on. So I think that's, that's very important because there's been so many of them that, you know, are go, are go to these state classes and they're like, Whoa, and then you see them dropping out. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to get into planning training. So let's take a step back and just summarize a little bit about where we've gotten to so far. So first and foremost, we've got to get our members to understand and embrace 
just how important training is to make them proficient, to make them competent. Also, it can help reduce any liability, some liability for the department, right? As And the individual firefighter, I, I dare say. So we, we've got to create that mindset in our department, just how important it is to train and be prepared and competent. Then we can sit down and figure out what we need to train on. And Chief Buckman, I love your ideas about, you know, asking people, when did you last do this? When did you last do this? Whether it was on the training ground or at an actual scene, put a training program based uh, together based on what the information you're getting back. And then looking at what's expected of you in your territory, what can you be reasonably expected to do on a regular basis? But then we need to plan training. And I know Chief McQueen, you said so correctly that in some departments, we fall into this cycle of doing the same thing at the same time every year. But there's a caveat to that, right? Isn't that kind of a dichotomy? Because in some regards, training is sometimes cyclical. In our area, in January and February, we're probably not outside. So we do get some of our safety drills out of the way. But um, but you say that's also a bad thing to fall into that repetitive cycle. So how do we plan it for the best impact? How do we get more bang for the buck, so to say, when we're planning our training drills? To me, I think it all goes to creativity. I think you have to be pretty creative. What I meant by doing the same cycle drills over and over again, we can do those. But why don't we change up the scenarios or change up the way we teach or change up the instructor? And I think it's also important for, for uh, instructors to get some type of an instructional course, you know, to learn how to adapt to the changes of, uh, of the learning styles of the volunteer firefighters. Um, you know, we all just don't learn the same way. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's a need for us to develop, you know, our instructional uh, methods to meet the needs of our firefighters. So they may change. Because, you know, we may have some firefighters come in the door and go out the next door, door the next day. So when we got to plan ahead too, right? I mean, too many times, too many stories, probably a very common comment I got is the standing around in a truck bay on a training night. What do you want to train on tonight? Right. We've got to get our, our leaders, our training officers to understand that, you know, you, there's nothing wrong with planning a drill a year ahead of time, have it ready to go. Line your people up six months ahead of time establish your goals and objectives, but planning the training drill is probably just as important. Successfully planning it, adequately planning it, is just as important as presenting it. Do you agree? I agree a hundred percent. I think it's also important that we're teaching the same thing. So if I have a Lieutenant car eight should be teaching the same thing that car two is teaching, because if we start doing things differently, we get to the scene and well, he told me this and you told me this. Mm-hmm. See you know, that. So We've got to have some type of a lesson plan set up in there. So car eight and car two are teaching the same things. You know, those people are not going to be screwed up. The other thing about planning training is make sure you're picking the right instructor. Make sure you're picking the instructor that wants to teach that topic. Don't assign John Buckman to teach ropes and knives because the class is going to be terrible. I'm not enthusiastic about ropes and knives. I can tie two or three ropes and tie two or three knots, but I can't tie the eight basic knots. So if you ask me, so make sure the instructor that you choose has a desire to do that training. That will improve the quality of that training 
probably 100% versus going, hey, John, go do ropes and knots next Monday night. Like, okay, I'll do it because you ordered me to, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so that that's a big part of planning is make sure you have the right instructor assigned. And also maybe go to your neighboring fire department and find one of their instructors who will come and teach topics that are pertinent and relevant to you. Brian's comment about checklist. I'm a big checklist person. So if you're doing skills, if you're doing an initial attack, we'll just use that as an example, and you expect them to get dressed in the truck, get off, pull the pre-connect, get it to the front door, does it have to be one of your instructors every time doing it? No, it actually could be a captain or a chief officer from a neighboring department. As long as they use a standardized checklist of we're going to evaluate you on these seven different things. Can you get dressed? Did you have all the buttons buttoned, all the collar snap snap? It's, you know, those kind of th things. And then the other things that we would call optional, th that's where the outside instructor may influence those optional way of thinking, going back to Brian's creativity comment. Yeah. It's so important to have some creativity. There is more than one way to do a thing in the fire, do most of our skills in the fire service. But your department determines which skill or how you're going to do that particular skill. And whether you're going to, you know, you're going to pull the pre-connect, do a shoulder load, you're going to pull a pre-connect, dump it on the ground, keep a hold of one of the straps and, and advance forward. You know, you can have 20 feet of hose outside the door. You know, all those are standard kind of things that would be as part of that checklist that Brian mentioned that every instruct, every skills night has to have a standardized checklist to evaluate people on so we don't get multiple ways to do the same thing on a fire gun. And it's funny you say that because in my experience and in, in, in feedback I've gotten as well, part of fire ground and firefighter dysfunction comes from, and this is so easy to understand in the volunteer fire service, we had a group of officers, and I always use this example, teach us how to raise ground ladders a couple of years ago. We, we were doing it this way. Two years later, the nature of the volunteer fire service, we've got a new group of officers. They went to a different conference. They learned a different way to do it. And now they teach a completely different way. And that can lead to dysfunction on the training ground or worse at the emergency scene. When I didn't go to the new training officers drill, I went to the one a few years ago and we're each raising it a different way. And we're yelling at each other, creating all sorts of dysfunction. So I think a checklist and an adopted best practice is the way that can help solve that dysfunction so the new group of officers coming in at least know hey this is how they used to teach it and if they're going to teach a different way they know then hey this is new for you all and they know they might have to concentrate on it a little bit more because for the last 10 years we did it a different way does that make sense does a training template help there is that incorporated in a Tom. checklist it not, you didn't use the word frustrated. <laughs> what you're doing is your long-term volunteers are becoming frustrated. It's like a certain national organization that taught us how to do CPR. Mm. Every couple of years, guess what? Change. They change the way yeah. you do it. But the outcome was always the same. And so it's the same thing here with your example of ladders. Okay, you can put the fly in, you can put the fly out. Does it matter? Does it change the safety of the climb? Does, does the ladder manufacturer don't do it one way or the other? In most cases, the answer to that is no. So why are you changing? Just for the sake of change? 
And that will frustrate the volunteers. Like I learned it this way. Now I got to learn it that way mm. for no real benefit to me as a member. If it's going to improve efficiency, going to improve safety, then obviously, yes, we're going to change it. But if it's not going to change the outcome, don't change the input. Yeah, without a doubt. I, I see that happen a lot. And um, it, it leads to dysfunction, not just on the training ground, like I said, but at the emergency scene as well. Not that there's anything wrong with our young officers coming back from the conferences with new ideas to try, but they need to understand that the department was maybe training on a different level to a different way of doing it and that it's a new way that they're trying. And it's going to, there's a process to do it correctly to get people comfortable with it. Yeah, I, yeah I, I think an example is is what I call what has been called the duck walk, where you're advancing a line down a hallway where we, when we first got on the job, we went down on our knees and we crawled forward. Well, we've had many firefighters fall through a hole in the floor or almost fall through a hole in the floor. So now somebody created a what I call the duck walk or you have one leg in front of you as you advance down that, that hallway. That's a, that's improves the outcome. It makes that advancing down that hallway safer. Heavens, yes, we should train how to do that differently, how to train that to the new way. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason it was changed. is because we reduced the risk to firefighters. Right. Chief McQueen, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I totally agree with, with what you're both saying as well. But I think somewhere along the line, there has to be a trust factor, you know, and I think some of that trust factor, if I, if I had somebody mentoring me or teaching some, I trust that person. If they were, if they were teaching me and showing me and doing it correctly, and then I see them performing it on, on the fire ground. So I think trust is very important when you come to any type of instruction, you know, you can, whether it's an elementary teacher to a high school teacher, to a fire instructor, mm -hmm. you know, I think, we have got to understand that the person that's doing the teaching knows what they're teaching and not just, I read it out of the book. Yeah. They're not I just haven't done it. They're not just talking to talk. Right. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. What else, what else goes into putting a training program together? What other tips do you have for assisting with the, the, the process of planning training? Anything else you can think of? One thing that I know, you talk about in the booklet is um uh, and it's just another way to come up with training drills after action reviews i think that's a great idea and you can do that for a routine call as well right it doesn't have to be the big structure fire there's nothing wrong with talking about some of the routine calls you went on and, and reviewing your operations and actually training to that level for routine incidents how about a routine fire alarm investigation how many times is that done different ways, right? Depending on who you get to be in charge of that call. It goes along with your response too, Tom. How many times you've been changed to a smells and bells call? You don't roll out with lights and siren. You know, you, you know, you respond to that place 82 times of the year. And you're going with a short crew, you know, so it all depends on, on the day. I mean, you know, during the day, I'm not sure how your departments are, but during the day we struggle a little bit with our, with our manpower, but uh, you know, we're able to get an engine out and stuff, but, you know, I think some of the things we have to realize is you're right. The response is so important. Do we have to go with lights and siren at 30 in the morning to a medical call? You know, mm -hmm. right. Well, a couple other things as it relates to 
planning training is that uh, when when there's got to be some kind of reward uh, or award for people when they accomplish the skills to the standard, you need to reward them. Now that can be as simple as a thank you. It can be a pat on the back. It could be a Tootsie Roll pop. I really believe that you know we're we're doing a skills and drills training tonight, and all five of the members they did all the skills appropriate. I, I was a big proponent of Tootsie Roll pops. Give them a Tootsie Roll pop at the end of the class because they all did it satisfactorily. And you know what? I bet you four out of the five of those people will take the wrapper off that Tootsie Roll pop and put it in their mouth. Or John, I'm excited about it. They'll be excited about it. John, I'm a little disappointed you didn't get him the red nose. <laughs> yeah, we, we give him a red, red clown or give him a roll of lifesavers. You know, I when you make a, a good, I say a good, you make a bad extrication where the outcome is good. Give him a roll of lifesavers. That's maybe more of an emergency type thing, but, but people need recognition. The young people today want to be know, want to be told that they did good. Right. And you can say, well, you know, us older people don't need it. Okay. We don't, we may not eat it. Well, I think that's baloney. You do need recognition just like anybody else. You may say you don't, but you do. And so my point is when they do the right thing, reward them. Yeah. Some and it can be, like I said, a simple roll of lifesavers can be, you know, have a bag of lifesavers and give out one, but give them all out. Let them know it. you're doing a good job. It, it, you know, the, the, the document we put together was very, very similar to what we did with the Lavender River reports on both of those. You know, we're not asking, you know, uh, officers or training officers to, you know, take this whole thing. You know, put it all into your system, embed it into what you want to do. But take maybe one or two and try them out, you know, and then maybe you'll like them. You go to two or three more. And, uh, you know, but the information that's in here is crucial. And I think it's that's one of the reasons why we put it as a direct download. It's a free download uh, because anybody can just take this and not stick it in their drawer, but put it on their table, put it on their, their desk. And, uh, you know, take a look at it and share it with those people that are going to be doing your instruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you talk about, too, the rules of engagement for volunteer staff departments. And you get into some examples of rules of engagement that maybe should be worked into your training program. Uh, Chief Buckman, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, an example is limited staffing. Brian mentioned that you know sometimes they have trouble staffing, uh, fully staffing equipment. My every volunteer part of our, mine included, and I'm sure Tom yours as well, has a hard time staffing during the day during the week. So the point is determine you, you as the fire chief need to write down what are the rules of engagement when you pull up on a structure fire with two firefighters on the engine, and the next group of firefighters are ten minutes away. And it's a working fire. What do you as the fire chief expect them to do? And then train them to do that. Don't do training where you have eight people. Yeah, don't conduct skills and drills with eight people when the majority of the time your first new engine has two people or four people. Mm. Make sure the training is appropriate for the way you deliver the services. And that, but that's, but, but we do it at night. Most of our training is done in the evenings. When we have 10 or 
12 people showing up and we're doing skills and drills with 10 or 12, with four to six people. But yet the majority of the time we respond with two or four people and then we're waiting six minutes for another two or four people for them to arrive either on the next piece of apparatus or direct response. And so we need to train them in the way we expect them to perform on the fire ground. So determine what your rules of engagement are. I, I trying to, we, my department just went through that. Uh, we had a structured fire during the day, early in the morning, two people on the, our, our part-time people were on duty. So they responded, they get there, it's a working fire. What does the fire chief expect them to do? Now, they, they did decide to go in because there were dogs, there was a report of dogs in there. They happened to be one of our firefighters' houses, so there's a lot of emotion involved. But they made the right decisions with limited staffing. They went in, the dogs were not found. They ended up dying. But they made a good, I should say, I made a good decision. Mm -hmm. uh, some people can argue whether it's the right or the wrong decision, but they made a good decision. They didn't just automatically do something. They decided, yep, I'm going to stick my head in the door. I'm going to look in. I'm going to go, you know, now he didn't go in the whole uh, door. He stayed with his body outside the door, but he did look in. Then they got the hose line up there and put water up from the outside. About then, uh, that was only like three minutes and 17 seconds. Uh, they had additional firefighters starting to show up so they could actually mount an interior fire tank. But they made the right decision, made the good decision based upon limited staffing versus just automatically going inside without thinking about what are the consequences with only two people. There was a third person on scene to operate the pump, but there's only two and there's no backup. Uh, there's no two in, two out. So what do yeah. you do? What it sounds like they, they train to the level or they, they perform to the level they trained for, for limited staffing. And it was a successful outcome. So that's what we talk about in rules of engagement. T tell your firefighters what you expect them to do. Mm -hmm. If you have two people, four people, six people, uh, because it's different. The biggest challenge that I see in the volunteer fire service from a structural fire response is the lack of consistency. We can't always say two people, four people, six people within the first four to eight minutes. Mm. And so and that's part of our challenge. We have to train people on how to make the right decision based upon what they see out there. And, and hopefully it's, it's, it's a good decision that ends up not getting anybody hurt. Right. And then our training re training requirements are different than that, right? The individual department's got to come up with what their training requirements are going to be, such as you have to, you know, become firefighter one certified within a year, within 16 or 18 months, right? Or, and you can't participate until you get this and this qualification. Um, and then you talk about developing training plans around those requirements as well. So is that something that we, that is that where SOPs, SOGs come into play? A little different than rules of engagement here. This is department SOPs, SOGs, which again, in my experience, that gets into trouble because the SOPs and SOGs are usually written. Well, after 10 years, you don't have to do anything anymore. <laughs> and I don't think that's really fair. Uh, actually, what we have is uh, what's called operating instructions, and uh, we make it mandatory for every new firefighter that comes into the fire station to make sure that they're very well versed in the operating instructions. And then what we try to do is build that information from the operating instructions into our into the training program, into our responses. And just to go back a little bit of what uh, you know John was speaking of, you know, we have got to be ready 
for, you know, whatever comes about. I mean, it, let's be honest, the world is changing. Uh, just take a look around us. The storm that you had in Buffalo. I mean, wow. I mean, you had to be prepared for that, you know, or would it be the floods that we have here in Whitesboro? We have to be prepared for that. So these are all the different things that changes the way that you develop your training and makes you more aware of that. I need to do a little bit more work on what's going to be affecting our area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then work that into your. One of the things we mentioned in the document is liability. And so as it relates to your question, Tom, is that every fire chief needs to make sure that the people, the firefighters that are responding on a call are trained to the skills you expect them to perform. That's an OSHA law. It's not a standard. It's a law. So if you get a firefighter injured, say, in climbing a ladder, but they've never been trained in climbing a ladder, you've increased your liability. So make sure that whatever you ask them to do on the fire ground or in any kind of emergency situation, they've had training before the situation. If not, Mr. or Mrs. Fire Chief, you will spend more time sitting across the table from a lawyer than you ever really want to spend time with lawyers because well, they will take you to court and they'll take you to task for your lack of decision. Well, sure. That 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 guy or gal was that drill two weeks ago when we did ladders. What do you mean he wasn't trained? How do we prove it? What do we is that is that where documentation comes in and or your skill assessment or is there a sheet to prove it? A lot of times it's just check off. Oh, Joe Smith was here, Jane Jones was here, and we did ladders this night, but that's it. So so to answer your question is yes. <laughs> All those things you mentioned. But the other thing, and I, and I this was a, when I was the state fire academy director, I, I told people this when they're doing certification training, you don't need to take a picture of every one of the firefighters climbing a ladder tonight, but you need to have a couple pictures of people climbing the ladder. So when they say, well, John Buckman says he wasn't trained on ladders. Well, John Buckman says he signed it. So at the, scene, at the training, he signed the document. The instructor said he was there. And here's the things that we expected firefighters to do. And nobody says that John Buckman could not climb the ladder. So, and, but that's also, see, this is one of those popularity things. Mm -hmm. as, as the instructor, Brian is going to have to have the guts to stand up to John Buckman and say, guess what? You can't climb ladders. Do not ever go up a ladder and write it down and give a copy to the fire chief and put it in their personnel file. Because that, that but that's the unpopular thing to do. But it's going, it will prevent so much trouble from you from somebody one day falling and slipping and, you know, coming down the ladder, head first, feet first, the ladder falling on the ground, you know, whatever, is having documentation and standing up and reporting that John Buckman can't perform the job of, of climbing a ladder. He's, he or she is still a firefighter. There are other things they can do on the fire ground. But we all have limitations. And so accept those limitations, but point them out and document them. And that gets yep. into the assessing your firefighters' capabilities, which I know is a big section in this manual, how to properly assess your firefighters' capabilities. So what goes into that? What um, some of the hands-on skills, how do we document? How, what do I look for? What, how do I assess these members' capabilities? What do you recommend for that? 
Chief Bachman or Chief McQueen? I, 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 I think ahead. it's, you know, I think what we need to do is to be able, and I think I mentioned it earlier with the JPR, got to be able to make sure that we are training these fire fires to the job that they're going to do. For instance, if they're a fire policeman, you're not going to make them climb a ladder, but you're going to make sure they know how to direct traffic. They knew, they're going to make sure they know how to do some crowd control for us. You're going to go to a recertification program in the state or in the county. So you have to design your training program for the job that those people are going to do. If they're an active firefighter, interior firefighter is going to be running our tower ladder. They're going to need to know how to climb ladders. They're going to need to know how to operate a tower. Um, if they want to be an officer, they'd have to, they have to be familiar and know how to operate a pump and how to drive a pump force, because how are they going to teach the next person if they don't know how to do it themselves? So again, job performance, I think, is, is those performance reviews and those checklists that we mentioned earlier, I think are crucial. You know, that's cool, too, yeah, is it brings everybody the, together, too. All the yeah, different I categories think, of members can be working together on a training ground and talk about helping eliminate clicks, get people training together. I think the simplest checklist are the Firefighter 1 Firefighter One checklist. Also, when you create, don't use a John Buckland created checklist because who is he? What makes him an expert in to be able to create a checklist on the different steps it takes to perform that job? You look at the Firefighter One checklist developed based upon JPRs, developed based upon the NFPA 1001 standard. Those are, have all been validated. So when you go, if you have to go to court, you're going to go, look, I use the NFPA 1001, whatever edition, you know, paragraphs, uh, section 1.4.1. That's the JPR I used. And so you, and then you have some validity on your side versus John Buckman going in a garage and saying, well, here's the steps I think you need to take. And here's how we're going to assess you. Uh, I'm nobody. And so, but th those would be the first checklist that you can make. Now, if there's checklists that aren't available that you may want on your department, such as how to establish command, uh, then yes, create your own checklist for that. Mm -hmm. But look at other departments to make sure that you're not doing something really way too far to the left or way too far to the right, that you're somewhere closer to the middle. Is there any to, any type of drill and training that uh, is man like you, no matter what, it's you've got to be prepared for this. I mean, I think the simple answer is yes, we should all be prepared for the single family house fire. Um, but is there any must do's other ladders, I guess you said SCBA competency that, that is a must do for all members in the department, or is it really jurisdictional? What do you think? Well, John has an opinion and, uh, and this is, this is a very, very basic, basic opinion, able to get dressed an inch and three quarter to the front door and conduct a primary search in a very rapid manner. That's that's about saving lives and putting out the fire. And if you can't do those three things, those are what I would call essential skills for every firefighter. Yes, raising a ladder is a nice to know thing, but we got to get that primary search done. And I don't think we train enough on doing primary search. Yes, we train on doing primary search. Maybe we're using the fire station apparatus bay, but that's not what a primary search is normally done in. It's not normally done in a clean room. Primary searches in most residences are done in, in rooms full of stuff. 
whether it's couches, chairs, tables, uh, newspaper, you know, whatever it might be. Well, we do primary search training and mostly in clean rooms. Where we go along the wall, we never run into any obstruction. I know of firefighters that, that have crawled over dead bodies mm. in a fire because they said, I didn't know. I didn't know what a dead body felt like. Well, I'm not saying we all should know how one feels like, but you should at least understand that when you come to a, a hump in the floor, that actually could be the victim that you're doing a primary search for. They're not always, as we do in training, go, well, they're not always on the bed. They're not always under the bed. They're not always hiding in the corner. They could actually be in the hallway. They could actually, be, Most victims are found three to 10 foot from the front door. They get that close. And so once you get past that and you're crawling down a hallway and you run into some obstruction, then you need to think about what is this obstruction? I mean, I can tell you the first one that I did year, this is a long, long time ago. We actually saw the after the picture, after it was over and we found the guy underneath a desk. We actually, or I actually touched his leg and rubbed part of his, you know, the skin off. And you can see that in the black and white picture. I would, I had him, but I didn't know what I had. Mm. And so I think that's a big thing. Get dressed, pull a pre-connect, and do a primary search of the three basic essential skills every firefighter should be able to perform to the standard. And the government tells us there's other things we need to train on, right? Could you delve a little bit into Chief Buckman or Chief McQueen? You know, people get so confused about OSHA and NFPA. And then there's that other word, PASH, that comes in. And, you know, some view the the mandatory safety training every year. And they actually, it's so repetitive and so common, it becomes boring and people roll their eyes. But but it's important and mandated, too. What's some of the mandatory training the government tells us we have to do? And who who are these people? I think that's good for the basic volunteer to understand these different agencies. Who is... OSHA, who is the Department of Labor, or who is Pasture, and what do we do? Who do we listen to? And is it vary by state? Is that too much to ask? Is that that's a big question? <laughs> I can tell you that FASNI had a, a program at their legislative conference a couple of years ago, uh, put on by Pesh, and uh, they put out the you know the you know the practices. But you know, if you're teaching the firefighter to the job that they're doing. And that, you know, whether it's climbing ladder, pulling hoses, running apparatus, whatever, whether it's fire police, you're teaching them to the job they're doing. You're following the protocol that's set up by that. I think you're going to be fine. New York State put out the Office of Fire Prevention and Control and Passion and, uh, OSHA put out a document uh, six, seven years ago about best practices. You know, what's what's expected of an interior firefighter? What's expected of an exterior firefighter, a pump operator? You know, those are just some great guidelines that you can you can follow. But, you know, we have to mandate uh, OSHA training when it's got to be part of the job that you perform as a firefighter. And then developing the best practices to help create this more efficient fire ground operation. Um, you in Section nine, you you outline some great best practices that kind of summarize some of the stuff we've talked about today starting with you know developing a education and training plan um, but also i thought this was unique to provide that plan to the firefighters so they know what could be expected of them and 
every year they know what's to be expected of them. Um, talk about that assessment to ensure they can do some of the skills in a certain time frame, following the safety policies, making sure that people are treated the correct way. And I love this one. Teach the concept. What does that mean, Chief Buckman? Teach the concept. Don't risk firefighters' lives. You just want them to become proficient in the skill in a way that you're not endangering their life on the training ground? Well, I think part of that, teaching the concept, uh, best practice, I guess the best practices are identifying what in your department are the best practices and then make sure you train to that. Then teaching the concept of survival is about how do we instill in the volunteer what their role is, what their career path is. And this is talking about a career path. Is if you've been on the department for a year, you should have been trained to this level. If you've been on for three years, you should be trained to this level. At four years, maybe you're gonna to try to be a lieutenant. Maybe you're gonna to try to be a captain at five years, so on and so forth. You give them an outline, so to speak, of what would be a good way for them to progress in the, in the department. Everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, most people who join the department want to progress. They don't want to be a firefighter ever. There are people who are satisfied at being firefighters, but they want to progress and they want to know how to progress. Hopefully it's not by elections all the time, but it actually is by performance and it's by certification, it's by training, education, and so on and so forth. So, so the concept is a combination of all those things, how to be successful in your department. It's not just one item. So the training of volunteers is just so important and we could talk for a very long time about it. I know we've been going already for over an hour and this booklet training volunteer firefighters to be combat ready is available for free for download. And is it on all three of the websites? Is it on uh, both the national volunteer fire council, international association of fire chiefs, VCOS, uh, volunteer and combination and officer section, and also the International Fire Service Instructors. It's in all those websites. Yes. For you. And it's free. And it's free. Yep. And Chief Buckman, I love the line too that you use. And I have people, what? What do you mean by this? Training should be relevant, pertinent, interesting. You've covered that. And fun? We can make training fun? Come on. I don't have to berate and yell and scream and you know ridicule people. Well, I'm not saying we're not going to do that. Uh, you know, I, I tell people, if I get in your face, it's because I love you and I want you to survive. But I'm not just going to get in your face just for the heck of it. And I think that's a, that's a, th I, I was a, I, I've, I've said this publicly, probably on webinars as well, is I was a terrible leader for the first 10 years of me being in a leadership position. I did not understand what it took to make, or what it, what, what makes people tick. And after 10 years of making mistakes and doing all the dumb and stupid things that I now can identify, I learned that's not how you do it. And so what I'm saying is volunteers want to be patted on the back when they do a good job. They want to be coached in a nice way to get better. And if it, and, and in the end, there is that one out of 10 people who you're going to have to counsel because they just don't get it. They just don't seem to want to get it. So you're going to have to sit them down and give them a 
you know, come to the fire chief meeting, so to speak. Like you're either going to have to improve or you're not going to be a, an active interior structural firefighter for this department. Not so, only improve, but participate too, which is a challenge in many departments. Yep. Yes, which sir. brings me full circle to what I said at the very beginning. As true professional firefighters, this applies to the paid side just as well as the volunteer side. You cannot choose to ignore training. You cannot think it's for other people. And you cannot think that because you've been doing the job for 5, 10, 15, 20, 40 years, that training doesn't apply to you. For as long as you choose to volunteer, you must train and participate. Training isn't just sitting in the background watching. Training is participating. Here's what I like to say, gentlemen, on the volunteer side. Participating to the level that you are expected to perform at. And if it's driving, great. Continue to practice driving. If it's directing traffic, great. Continue to practice and train on directing traffic and mentoring new people coming up to do that job. Whatever role it is, scene support's a big one today, right? A lot of scene support members out there. Well, training for them might be throwing ladders, might be running electric, might be getting um, SCBA service areas set up outside the fire. Whatever it is, there's a way to incorporate all of that into the training ground on training night and make members and members need to make sure they need to participate. It's that simple. If you're a professional firefighter, you're training. I know you gentlemen agree with that. 100%. 100%. I, you know, I think it's, and sometimes we also, you know, we sometimes fail that uh, when we use an object, let's say we use a gas powered uh, positive pressure ventilation fan, we're using it for a while at the fire. And then we take it and we put it back on the rig. Do we check the rig after? You know, is that part of our instruction? You know, for the officer, the firefighters that are on there, do we go through those rigs at the end? Because how many times has it been that we pull something out and it's empty? Mm. You know, so we're not doing our yeah. job. You yeah. know? So that's something I think we need to build into our, you know, in our checklist as well. And but, my- you know, you know, Chief Chief Merrill, you do an absolute. I've I've seen your programs twice now, three times now. You do an absolutely outstanding job getting across all of the messages that we spoke about today. And this is just one more document that you can feel free to include in that program to share with these people that, hey, there's people out there, whether it's VCOS, MVFC, International Society of Fire Service Instructors, whoever it is, they're here to help you, you know, right. so use what they give you and it's right. free. And it's free. You don't have to reinvent the wheel here. It's free. It's absolutely free. And you know, there's so many things that we could talk about. We could go on forever. Um, and I wanted to talk about this earlier. I wrote it down and then forgot. If you're an instructor, be enthusiastic. Chief Buckman, I think you said it earlier, right? If if you're rolling your eyes or bored with the subject when when or the chief comes in and he's not interested in that, that has a ripple down effect for sure. But folks, if you're going to be teaching on the fire ground or at the fire hall drill, be passionate about it. Even if it's the routine yearly safety drill, come up with a way, give out those lifesavers, hand out a red nose, right? People like candy better probably, right? Absolutely. But make it interesting, make it fun, make people walk away 
And here's the very important thing for the volunteer fire service. When that volunteer firefighter goes home that night, they don't want to say to whoever they're going home to, what a complete waste of time that was. Because you know what? A volunteer's most precious commodity is time. And if you're not making the most of that time, they're going to find something else to do next week when it's training night. They're going to stay home or do something else. Make the most of your volunteer firefighters time on the training ground. A lot goes into training. There's so much more to talk about. I encourage all of our listeners to please go online tonight and download this document, Training Volunteer Firefighters to be combat ready. And you can get it off the websites of the National Volunteer Fire Council, the International Society of Fire Service Instructors, and the International um, Fire Chiefs Association Volunteer and Combination Officers section. If you Google those names, it'll take you to their sites. Correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, and they should be relatively easy to download from there. I got mine off of the National Volunteer Fire Council site. It was right there and easy to download. Um, um, but do would, it. Would, as we start to wrap this up here, I mean, as Brian said earlier, and it's, it's you know, we, we looked at, for those that have stayed this long, you're going, oh my gosh, look at all this stuff we got to do. We said in the document, you'll eat this elephant one bite at a time. One bite at a time, yes. Yeah. The original document was whatever, 12 pages long, and this one is 50. Do not, I repeat, do not in capital letters try to implement all the things in this document in one month. Pick a couple and move on. Pick a couple more and move on them. Make progress, and that will end up making you successful. But don't say, oh, my gosh, 50 watt-on pages. I can't do this. Yes, you can. One bite at a time. In that first bite, I'm going to tell everyone what the first bite is. Sorry, it's my show. I can do that. <laughs> the first bite, everyone has to agree that training is important. There you go. That's first bite. That's an easy one. Cross that off. Check it off. You, the listener, right now. Training is important. And how about I add, I will participate. There you go. Check it and off. Make, go ahead, Chief McQueen. And it will save your life. There you go, brother. There you go. Absolutely. There's your there first. We, go. we, we got to create that checklist then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gentlemen, um, as we wrap it up here, first of all, thank you for your time. Um, is there any parting words, I, uh, Chief Buckman, I know you just said about don't try to do everything at once. You know, maybe for the first month, in addition to, you know, understanding you're going to, the training's important, you're going to participate because it can save your life. Maybe you want to just jump into doing an assessment. I like that question. You know, when did you last use an SCBA? Was it training or drill? Come up with an assessment. Maybe that, however you do it, take little bites out of this one at a time. And I'll start with you, Chief Buckman. Any final words, anything you want to say? I know we went quick through this document, but I think we hit a lot of the important parts of it. And 2023 is here. It's time to focus on training. I guess, uh, thank you for the, you know, let me make my comment about the elephant. I guess the one thing I would tell you is if you're curious about what's said in this document, one of the things we did, which is unusual, is we put the instructor or the author's name in each section. Yes. And we give the author's email addresses in the document. So it's not like this document, who wrote this section? Well, we tell you who wrote this section and you can email them. So again, as you download the document, start reading through it, and you got a question 
on chapter seven, which I think maybe Rich Calger wrote, email him and ask him, what did you mean by this? And that we'll all be glad to answer the questions uh, for the stuff that we wrote and maybe for stuff that we didn't write. Exactly. Exactly. My, my closing points are this. Never stop learning. I, I, I don't think I, it's, it's just something you have to continue to do. Like I said, I start my 45th year in the fire service now. And I learn new things every day from people. And, uh, you know, take that lesson you learned, share it with those people. Right. You know, make yourself a part of the family. I think that's really crucial. And make sure we all go home together. And, you know, I forgot to ask you, gentlemen, just since you're my guest, I always like to allow people uh, to contact you if they have questions for you. So would you, uh, Chief uh, McQueen, since you're talking there, can you give your contact info for sure. our members? Sure, I'll give you my cell phone numbers. Sure, 315-552-8245. And my email is 271believe at gmail.com. And Chief Buckman, how can people right. get a hold of you? My uh, cell phone number is 812-480-4339. I would love to talk to you, but I ask you to text me. Yes, you do so that. I know right? it's real. I get so many spam calls a day that I don't answer most of the phone calls that I don't know who it's from. Because so you are a busy man. Say, so text me and tell me you want to talk, and I'll call you back. My you're email a very address, busy man. Thank you. Email address is jmbuckman3rd at gmail.com. One more time, gr it's jmbuckman3rd gotcha. at gmail.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being here today. Again, for our listeners, it's training volunteer firefighters to be combat ready. And it's available through the National Volunteer Fire Council website, the Volunteer and Combination Officer section of the International Fire Chiefs, and also the International Society of fire service instructors. If you were to go on any of those websites, you will be able to find this important document. And as we enter 2023, and as we wind up the show tonight, focus on training, understand it's important, no matter what role you play, no matter your rank, no matter your tenure, no matter what it is you do back home, it is so important to be training and participating in training. And if you're a training officer, or if you're an instructor, you got to take it up a notch and be prepared and put the time in and make sure you're assessing the needs of your people. And this booklet will help you. So thank you very much to everybody. My guest tonight, especially Chief John Buckman, Chief Brian McQueen. Thank you so much. If anybody wants to reach out to me, it's tamerrill63 at aol.com. I'm on the Facebook Professional Volunteer Fire Department Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, my website, theprofessionalvfd.com. Please check it out. I have links to all my articles, podcasts that I've done, presentations that are coming up. And remember, start making plans for the great FDIC experience, which will be April 24th to the 29th. Love to see you there and love to have you listening into the next show, which will be Tuesday, February 14th. And I can guarantee we'll have another great guests or guests with great topics of relevance to our volunteer fire departments. And as always, thanks to my fire engineering family. And again, I will be forever grateful to my dear friend, all of our dear friend, Chief Bobby Halton, 
for the opportunities are provided to me over the years, but most really most importantly for his friendship. Rest in peace, Chief. I will miss you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.